What if no one knew who you were and you had lost the ability to tell them, to tell your own story? Could you give me your name? What is your name? What is your name? Imagine not being able to answer that question. There's a man who's been lying in a hospital bed in San Diego for 15 years, unconscious and unidentified. Here's his story the way I first heard it. He's driving a van through the California desert. It's hot and the windows are rolled down. A car comes up fast behind him, the border patrol. So he speeds up. And then suddenly, a crash. And he's thrown from the van. When paramedics arrive, they search his pockets. All they find are a Mexican phone card and a few pesos. Nothing with his name on it. The man doesn't regain consciousness. He spends a year in a hospital on life support. When there's no hope he'll recover, he's transferred to a nursing home in San Diego. The nursing home staff guesses he's around 40 years old, but his face looks young. Big brown eyes and round cheeks. They call him by the name on the hospital bracelet he's wearing. 66 Garage. 66, the number spelled out. Garage as in the place you take your car. For the next 15 years, that's how he'll be known. A 66 Garage. When I first start visiting Garage in 2015, the staff at the nursing home tells me his name came from the place his van was towed after the crash, a place called 66 Garage. Like most of the story I first hear about him, this isn't true. To find out what really happened, I'll have to travel across the U.S. and to Mexico and Canada. I'll track down documents no one thought existed and find witnesses who were in the desert that morning. I remember hearing the, the cars crashing because you could hear it from my bedroom. It was early in the morning. He was face up because uh, I remember he was there was he had a reaction when I got hit. The guy that was laying there was not unconscious. Eventually, Garage will be identified. But that's not where this story ends. Learning Garage's name, that's the easy part. The tough part will be figuring out why he was left lying in that bed, unidentified, for so long, and whether the person inside Garage still exists. My name is Joanne Farian, and I'm an investigative reporter. This is Room 20, a new podcast from the LA Times Studios. I first heard about 66 Garage back in 2014 while I was working on a story about people kept alive on life support, sometimes for decades. We had nothing in common, Garage and I. He was born in a place so foreign to the Canadian prairie where I grew up. His life was unfamiliar in every way. And yet Garage would set me off on a new path. One Monday morning, about a year after I first meet Garage, I quit my job and leave behind a newsroom where I've worked for nearly a decade. I'm going to solve a mystery. I'm going to find out who 66 Garage really is. Hey, Terry, Ed Kirkpatrick, how are you today? That's Ed Kirkpatrick. He runs the nursing home where 66 Garage lives. We're in his cramped office, and he's on the phone with Garage's doctor. On Garage 66, he's yours, right? Ed's got a thick southern accent. 
He's a big man in his early 60s, the kind of guy who sneaks a late afternoon smoke every now and then. One of the reporters who did that first uh, story on him uh, from KPBS um, wants to come and spend a few hours just sort of observing what his day is like. He asks the people who take care of Garage, his doctor and his social worker, whether it's okay for me to spend time in Garage's room. When I first met Ed, I was working on a series of stories about the thousands of people in California kept alive on life support. Many of them are in a vegetative state, meaning they're so brain damaged they're not aware of their surroundings or even themselves. The majority of these patients do not have awareness of their environment and they are totally dependent, and so it's a very debilitating situation for someone to to be in. They live in special nursing home units. Doctors sometimes call these places vent farms, after the ventilators that keep their patients breathing. People on life support are attached to two tubes, a feeding tube in the stomach and a tracheostomy tube in the throat. You'll hear on the news the the car accident that happened and two people were critically injured and sent to the trauma center and they're now in critical care on life support and, and that's it. We don't ask what comes next, Ed says, or we think those people either died or recovered or went home to their families. And you may not ever understand or know that You know, three or four years from now, that person is in a vegetative state that uh, they never recovered from. Ed says when he first started working at the nursing home, he remembers making his rounds and coming upon room 20 and a resident named 66 Garage. And I turned to one of the assistant managers and said, what's this all about? And she told me, you know, this guy's been here 15 some years, and he's an unknown. I sort of said, you know, who gave him that name? He was remarkably in good condition, relatively young-looking man, and um, but he was um, bedridden and thin, but, but he had uh, bright eyes. I was wrapping up my earlier reporting when Ed told me about Garage. He said Garage was in a vegetative state, and so the first time I see him, I treat Garage as though he's an object, as though he isn't a man at all. I don't make eye contact. I don't smile. I don't do any of the things we do when we first meet someone. Then one day, I'm standing over Garage, trying to see whether he looks like another man in a photo, someone who'd gone missing. When suddenly, Garage smiles at me. Here's a man who is supposed to be so brain damaged that he's lost his ability to think or feel, but he smiles. I'd done the research. Being in a vegetative state is different from what we see in the movies, where people lie peacefully, eyes closed in a hospital bed. In real life, people in a vegetative state can suddenly sit upright in their beds, spontaneously move their arms and legs. They frown, they laugh, they cry, they smile. These can all be reflexes, not real emotions. But when Garage smiles, I become convinced he's still in there. 
Had this happened at any other time in my life, a year sooner, months later, the outcome might have been different. I didn't know it then, but I had unfinished business at the nursing home. It was personal. I've had an obsession with death for as long as I can remember. My father died in his bed on a Sunday morning when I was 18. I'm still haunted by the screams of my sister. Dad's dead, dad's dead, she said running through the house. Another Sunday morning, years later, I was with my mother when she died. I was the one who told the doctor to disconnect the machines keeping her alive. All these years later, I still wonder whether I killed my mom. Did I act too quickly? Not ask enough questions? Being here at the villa, it's like I've walked back in time to that decision, looking for signs of life in others in case I miss them in my own mother. In my career as a journalist, I spent a year reporting on people in hospice, and then another year reporting on people in these so-called vent farms, which of course is where I met 66 Garage. As I report his story, I'll struggle, and often fail, to remain objective. What I learn will make me question what I thought I knew about identity and consciousness. It'll make me question the stories we tell about others, and the stories we tell about ourselves. Several months after Ed introduced me to Garage, I quit my job. It's 2015, and Ed is printing out a letter, giving me permission to be in room 20. He takes a risk letting me in. Nursing homes are bound by privacy laws. He does it because he wants to know, too, who Garage really is. Because he's a human being. He's a, he's a, he's a person, and um, it was 15, 16 years is too long to go without knowing, you know, who, who this was and, you know, where did he grow up? Uh, did he have brothers and sisters? Did he have children of his own? Did, you know, what was he doing here? We need to know that. It's part of being um, a human being. We needed to close that book, that chapter or whatever. We needed to figure that out. We need to CSI the hell out of it. I don't know where in the desert garage crashed, when he crashed, or how he crashed. But in Ed's words, I will CSI the hell out of it. So now I'm going to spend my days at Garage's bedside trying to know a man who is seemingly unknowable. At first, I think I'll be here a couple of weeks, a couple of months tops. I never imagine it will turn into two years. Have you ever stared at a full closet and realized I have nothing to wear? You're not alone. This happens to me more times than I care to admit. The issue is, refreshing your closet can take a toll on your wallet and the planet. That's why ThreadUp, the world's largest online consignment and thrift store, is on a mission to inspire shoppers to think secondhand first. ThreadUp makes it super easy to stay on trend and on budget. Discover clothes, accessories, and shoes from top brands like Madewell, Lululemon, Free People, and more for up to 90% off estimated retail. I've always liked the idea of thrifting, but I don't have the time to dig through racks of clothes that aren't in my size or style. That's why I love shopping on ThreadUp. They've transformed the experience to be fun and easy. Plus, ThreadUp triple inspects each item by hand, so everything is in like-new condition. I was on their site recently looking for some summer dresses and found so many high-quality options, like an anthropology dress for just $13. For a limited time, they're offering Room 20 listeners an extra 30% off your first order when you go to threadup.com room20. That's on top of the already low prices. 
That's T-H-R-E-D-U-P dot com slash room 20. Threadup.com slash room 20 for an extra 30% off today. Terms apply. Give yourself support this season with a boost. Whether you're looking for energy, better sleep, to maintain stress, or something else to help you feel your healthiest, Care-of makes it easy to upgrade your health routine. Plus, it's so much fun. Care-of's online quiz asks you about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices. And it takes only five minutes to get your personal, scientifically-backed vitamin and supplement recommendations. The quiz gets really personalized, so you know you're getting a tailored plan just for you. Depending on your Care-of plan, you'll get daily vitamin packs, quick-stick-dissolving nutrients, or protein powder sent right to your door. It's so cute and customized. The packets even say your name on them. I was looking for more energy before my gym sessions, and I got recommended plant protein for muscle recovery and maca powder to help prevent gym burnout. Taking care of your health should always be this easy and convenient. Plus, you can modify your subscription at any time when your needs or preferences change. I also love the environmentally friendly packaging. Care-of's individually wrapped vitamin packets are now made from compostable plant-based film, so your vitamins are kept fresh and safe while now being better for the environment. For 25% off your first Care-of order, go to takecareof.com and enter code ROOM20. That's takecareof.com with code ROOM20 for 25% off your order. The Villa Coronado Skilled Nursing Facility is tucked away in an upper-middle-class neighborhood in San Diego. Most of the people who work here just call it the villa. It's a single-story, sand-colored building, close enough to the ocean that I can sometimes feel the breeze off the bay. Eventually, I will have been here so long, I'll know something about the people who live here and their families. There's the woman who sings to her comatose husband on Sundays. The mother who puts socks and shoes on her son's feet every day, even though he's in a vegetative state and will never walk. The 27-year-old whose skin turned iridescent green as he waited for a new liver that never arrived. An old woman with long silver hair who makes me think of my mother. And there's the woman down the hall with dementia who moans for help every evening at 6. There's also Steve and Raffaella. She was thrown from the back of his motorcycle six years ago. Steve was the one who persuaded her to go for a ride. He's at her bedside nearly every day, still hoping for a miracle. Ed says this kind of hope, hope without reason, it defines the villa. Those one in 10 million stories that the media loves to pump up about, oh, so-and-so jumped out of the bed after two years in a coma and went and played 18 rounds of golf. Before Ed ran the villa, he was an ICU nurse, so he's seen a lot of people and their families in the most critical moments of their lives, often when all they have is hope or faith. There is a spirit that we all have about us, and... That part is very important to who we are. But I'm, I'm not a believer that there is the big S spirit that's going to descend on a person who's been in a vegetative state for 15 years and all of a sudden they're going to walk. If you somehow stumbled upon Room 20, you'd probably miss the name typed in small letters next to the door. S. Garage. There are three beds in this room, 
In the first bed is an old guy they call Papa. He's bald with greenish-brown eyes and a nearly toothless smile. Papa is conscious and can still grunt when he wants something. When I first start visiting room 20, the middle bed is empty. Garage is in the bed closest to the patio doors. His thick, dark hair that's shaved about a half inch from his scalp. His face is round, his eyelashes long and straight. His lips are full and often coated with the white pasty film that accumulates because his mouth is always dry. That sound you hear? That's Garage's oxygen machine. It never stops. Sometimes you can hear Garage gurgle. Under the thin sheet, his body makes a small outline like that of a teenage boy. Nursing assistants are constantly coming in and out of room 20. Sometimes they call him Mr. Garage, sometimes 66. Okay, Mr. Garage, I'm just going to change your dressing a little bit. It's all soaked up. And a few old-timers, nursing assistants who've been here as long as Garage, give him names they like better, more human ones. Muy bien, Romeo, okay? On my first day in room 20, I sit on a black folding chair in the corner of the room, as far away from garage as possible. I feel like an intruder in this place, and I feel even more awkward now that I'm coming on my own, without a newsroom to report to. The TV is on, and it's loud, some violent show. I can't find the remote. The room smells like poop. I look over and notice that Papa, the old guy, has his left hand under the covers. He's moving it back and forth. This goes on for a couple of minutes, and when he finally stops, I convince myself I didn't see what I just saw. These rooms are so small, there's no space for privacy. For the few hours I'm here, I hardly move from my chair. I write in my notes, I wonder why I decided to do this. On the second day, instead of sitting in the corner, I pick up my chair and move closer to garage. I'm going to sit with you. He's awake, and there are tears in his eyes. He's gurgling. You look scared. It's okay. That's uncomfortable, okay? It's uncomfortable. I'm embarrassed to look at Garage too closely. He's kicked off his sheet and is wearing only a diaper and a T-shirt. I keep trying to cover him without actually touching him. I really don't know how to speak to Garage. I feel uncomfortable and self-conscious. So often he looks as though he's choking to death. You're uncomfortable? You're I don't know what I'm supposed to say. There is nothing that makes sense to say, but I also can't just sit by and watch. He looks as though he's suffering. They're gonna, they're gonna help you. Someone's gonna come and help you, okay? They're gonna come and help you. I know, it hurts, it hurts, yeah. I know. I'm speaking to him like he's a child. But that's what he looks like. A helpless child. Unable to tell anyone what he wants or needs. So I talk to fill up space to reassure him. At one point, I lean over his bed and I wave my index finger in front of his eyes, side to side, to see whether he can follow the movement. Yeah, can you do this? Yeah, yeah. His eyes move with my finger. In the medical world, this is called tracking. I'm not a doctor, but I already know that if Garage can track, he's not in a vegetative state like I was told, because tracking isn't a reflex. I've seen Garage's eyes follow Ed Kirkpatrick, but when he does it for me, it seems different. 
I'm convinced Garage understands more than everyone thinks he does. A little later, Andy, one of the nurses, comes to the room, along with Ed. It's time to suction Garage. Permiso, senor. Garage can't cough and clear the mucus from his chest like a healthy person. Respira, respira. And so Andy inserts a narrow plastic tube into the hole in Garage's throat and then suctions the mucus from his chest with a small vacuum. Garage's round face inflates and turns a deep red. Ed says suctioning is torture. Sounds like waterboarding, which is exactly what it is. It's the same physical concept. You're and you're doing it seven, eight, nine times a day to a person. While Ed's still in the room, I tell him Garage can follow my finger with his eyes. Ed tries to get him to do it again. Garage, look over here, Garage. Look over here at me. Mr. Garage, look over here at me. But Garage looks ahead, his eyes blank. He's tired out. Are you tired? Are you tired? Yeah? See, maybe I was wishful thinking. Ed says, I'm becoming like the other people he sees at the villa, the families who visit their loved ones. He says, if you spend enough time here, you start denying reality. See what you want to see. Believe what you want to believe. Ed says, that's happening to me. By day three, I see a routine. Every day is more or less the same. Garage is changed and turned. Medicine is pumped into his liquid feed. He's on seven medications, including an antidepressant. Some days, he's placed on a gurney for a shower, or a hydraulic lift lowers him into a special wheelchair so he can be moved into the hallway or activities room. Most of the time, he's in bed with the TV on. Today, Ed comes by again. He picks up Garage's hand. Um, no, I just noticed the last time I was checking, his, yeah. he's gotten stiffer. Oh. Lying in a bed so long makes muscles shrink and tighten. Over time, hands can become permanently clenched. I bet that hurts too. See that? Mm-hmm. So sad. Garage often sounds as though he's choking. When I first began reporting here and I heard that sound, I ran for help. Now, I recorded on video. Are you okay? It's nearly unbearable to watch, and I feel terrible recording it. Are you okay? I decide I can't do this, just sit here and take notes while he suffers. If I'm going to be in this room, I have to try to connect with Garage. Be more than just a reporter. On day four, I'm at Garage's bedside, and I speak to him. Hi, do you remember my name? Joanne? Yeah? I'm still speaking to him as though he's a baby, because in many ways, he acts like one. He kicks his right foot up and down, turns his head to follow movements and sounds, turns his head to look at me. Hi, you want to try to talk? 
I know, you're trying to say something. You feel better today, I can tell. Oh, you're nodding your head. Are you better? It's Saturday, the fifth day, and the TV is on, and it's loud. Hugo, a nursing assistant, has just changed garage's sheets in his diaper. Hugo rotates between nursing homes. He doesn't know much about garage, just what he's heard on the news. He was in a car accident, right? He was, yeah. Hugo's got an uncle who's been missing for almost two decades. He can't understand why no one has come to look for Garage, why no one has tried to identify him for 15 years. And I was wondering, like, okay, if back then he had a car accident, why people didn't, or why the police didn't follow up and track the license plates to who was the owner or where did the owner of that car live so they can question him about him. I ask Hugo for help. I don't speak Spanish. Can you blink once for yes? Señor Garage. Señor Garage. Hola, buenos días. ¿Me escucha? Si me escucha, puede parpadear los ojos una vez? Hugo asks Garage to blink once, to blink twice. Nothing. Garage doesn't move. On my sixth day in room 20, I finally find the courage to touch Garage. I take his hand and gently unfold his fingers. They are long and slender, and his fingernails are overgrown. His hands feel soft. Straighten them a little. Ed says you should straighten them. Loosen them up. I notice his wrists are smaller than mine, and suddenly, knowing who Garage is and finding his family feels especially urgent. Next time, we find the scene of the crash. Oh, hello? Hello? Uh, so I, I'm a writer, I'm a, a reporter, writer. Do you live here? To an intersection in the middle of the California desert. Was there ever a stop sign there? Never. Never a stop sign? No, no. Like almost everything about Garage's story, nothing will be as it appears. This show was reported and executive produced by me, your host, Joanne Farian. My senior editor was Susan White. Room 20 was produced by LA Times Studios' Clint Schaff and Camila Victoriano, with production support from Neon Hum Media. Special thanks to Sam Tari and Andy Trimlett for production and research help during my reporting. To discover more about the story, go to latimes.com slash room 20. 